Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Dow Jones closed down today better than 1,000 points, 1,031 spot 61 to be exact. You know, that's just, I think, the third time in history that that index has closed down more than 1,000 points. Of course, percentage-wise, it's really not that significant. 3.5% or just over is the size of the decline. You know, that's about where the market opened. The Dow gapped down about 900 or so, or it was down that much in the first few minutes of trading. So it didn't really lose any additional ground, although it tried to rally a couple of times throughout the day, uh, maybe got to down less than 800 a couple of times, but came into a lot of selling and ultimately closed the day on the lows, which technically I think looks pretty weak. The NASDAQ was even weaker, down 3.7%. It spent some part of the day uh, down over 4%. But the number of points there, 355 points down for the NASDAQ. But none of these indexes were spared. Even the Russell 2000 was down over 3%. And remember, the Russell 2000 is the one index that did make a new record high. And that one, I think, technically looks the weakest. And remember, that is the one that is the most focused on the domestic economy, which everybody is saying is so great and which Donald Trump is trying to take credit for reviving. It's the domestic stocks that are the weakest, despite the fact that the coronavirus, right, is mainly outside the United States. I mean, supposedly that was the catalyst for the selling today and over overnight because there's some, you know, more outbreaks. Uh, South Korea is dealing with it. And now you got Italy. Uh, so Europe is now dealing with uh, the virus as well. And so that has spooked a market that was already uh, vulnerable. Remember, we're talking about the U.S. stock market that's at bubble territory, nosebleed valuations, uh, long in the tooth, the longest bull market in U.S. history uh, that has been fueled by the most reckless monetary and fiscal policy in U.S. history. But this is a bubble in search of a pin. Uh, so, you know, maybe the coronavirus is going to end up being the pin 
Uh, but if we had a healthy market, if we had a healthy economy, then it wouldn't matter about uh, the coronavirus. It's because the economy is sick. That's the problem, not the people who are infected uh, with this virus. And, you know, people are on television all day talking about how, hey, this is no big deal. There's nothing to worry about. And, you know, maybe there's not. I don't know. I mean, it could be a big deal. We don't know how bad this virus is going to get. Remember, I admitted on my podcast, I think a couple ago, uh, that the coronavirus looks like it's going to be a much bigger deal than I originally thought. You know, when it first came out, I thought, okay, maybe it's just an excuse that it'll blow over. But then as I began looking at the data and what was happening, I could see that the virus itself was a bigger disruption to the global economy than I initially thought it might be. Now, I still don't know how the whole thing is going to pan out. But for people to say, hey, we don't have to worry. Look, the market is expensive anyway. There is a lot to worry about, even if we didn't have the coronavirus. So now when you have this too, right, you have another straw on a camel's back that is ready to just implode at any moment because he's already, you know, barely able to support all the straws that are already up there. I mean, hey, why not sell? Why not lighten up in the stock market? It certainly makes a lot of sense. But, you know, CNBC, for example, really pounding the table to get people not to sell to not worry about the coronavirus. And who knows, maybe they shouldn't worry about it, but they should worry about a lot of other things. And this is just an other reason, an additional reason to sell an overvalued market. You know, the real buying, though, was taking place in the bond market. The uh, yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury all the way down to one spot 377, all-time record low for the 10-year. The same thing on the 30-year, 1.837 yield curve though I guess is steepening uh, during the decline but still 1.837 percent on a 30-year this is a bubble too this is the biggest bubble of them all and what is fueling this bubble the reason that so many speculators are piling in the U.S. treasuries is because they assume the Fed is going to cut rates and they're right the Fed is going to cut rates in fact they're already pricing in I think two or maybe three rate cuts between now and the end of the year, which of course is going to happen because the last time we had the stock market dropping like this was in December of 2018, right? We had all this weakness and what did the Fed do? The Fed started cutting rates. So it's like, you know, Pavlov's dog. When the markets are weak, uh, the traders are trained. They know what's going to happen. They know that, you know, that Fed's going to come and they're going to cut rates. And so they're trying to pile in the bonds because they think that the bonds are going to benefit from the rate cuts. And, you know, they have in the past, I guess, but they're not going to always do that because eventually the traders are going to figure out that what the Fed has to do to prop up the economy and the stock market and the bond market is actually negative, not only for the economy, but the bond market because they're creating inflation. And inflation is the biggest enemy of a bond investor. And so these people that are piling into 30-year treasuries and accepting a nominal yield of 1.8% in front of what's going to be a massive surge in inflation. Again, as I've been saying, and as the media has been completely ignoring, to the extent that the coronavirus damages the global economy, it's damaging economic output. It means there's going to be reduction in the supply of goods. Fewer goods are going to be produced or there's going to be bottlenecks in the supply chain and uh, companies won't be able to get parts that they need. And so there's going to be a shortage of stuff. 
You don't solve a shortage by creating more demand by printing money. That just throws gasoline on the fire. So they're just going to make the stagflation even worse. But, you know, for now, the dumb money is piling into treasuries because they think they're doing something safe when they're actually doing something extremely risky and probably extremely foolish if the music stops playing and, uh, you know, they still, they still hold those treasuries. The real safe haven money was going into gold. Right. And gold finished the day up about 15 or 16 dollars, I think about 1660. Uh, but intraday, gold got as high as I think 1690. We were up better than 40 dollars early on. Uh, the rally started last night, but we kept on gathering momentum. So that was a big update in the price of gold. Uh, even though we got a lot of selling late in the day. In fact, I think getting into the last hour or two, we were still up about 30 bucks. And then all of a sudden there was some selling and the market came down, but it didn't go negative. The gold market held on to most of those gains or a good chunk of them and closed up you know, just under 1%, even though it had been up you know, two and a half percent or so earlier. A silver market also had bigger gains early on, but it still managed to close up about 15 cents. So that was about eight-tenths of one percent. Gold stocks kind of had a mixed day, though. They started off very strong. All these stocks gapped way up, but immediately they ran into a wall of selling. So all the traders took advantage of those gaps and immediately began selling the gold stocks. And later in the day, when we got the sell-off, we had another round of selling in the gold stocks. And so the GDX only closed up 1.3% on the day. Not that big a move, way off the high. Still, though, a new high for the year uh, was set intraday. Uh, the GDXJ, though, the junior miners, that index actually managed to finish the day negative uh, slightly, uh, surrendering some big early morning gains. But again, the fact that the first thing that traders thought about doing was selling into this morning's rally, again, uh, confirms the fact that this is still the most unloved bull market ever, probably for gold. Nobody is looking for a reason to buy. Everybody wants to sell. Uh, people don't believe this gold rally. We keep on making new high after new high after new high, yet nobody wants to come on and really recommend gold or recommend these gold stocks. No, it's funny. I was watching a discussion on uh, CNBC about you know what stocks investors should buy if Sanders becomes president. And I'm going to talk more about Sanders a little bit later in the podcast. But I thought this was funny because even Jim Cramer was in there and there's a whole group of people. And I forget the crazy stocks that they came up with would be like the ones that would benefit uh, from a Sanders presidency. But not one person in that group said, hey, how about a gold stock? Like maybe gold stocks would be the best beneficiaries of a Sander presidency, which of course they would be because it's terrible for the economy, recession, stagflation, massive inflation. I mean, it's a no brainer that gold stocks would be the number one performer, right? If we elect Bernie Sanders, which is probably why these guys couldn't figure it out because they didn't have the brains. Uh, so they couldn't figure out uh, gold stocks. But most of uh, the day on CNBC, you know, was spent trying to hold uh, the hands of their viewers and make sure that everybody stays on board and that nobody sells their stocks. And of course, you know, the whole thing here is that 
if a bunch of people want to sell, then the market's going to implode. You know, a lot of people who have been invested in the U.S. stock market for years and years, you know, they have a lot of gains. You know, I was reading this article about how now we have a record number of 401k and IRA millionaires. And sure, that's great until these retired people actually need that money. Because once a lot of people who plan on retiring uh, with a portfolio of overpriced U.S. stocks, you can't really you know, finance your retirement on the dividend income. So you have to start liquidating the principal. But when enough of the baby boomer starts liquidating principal, where is the money going to come to buy them out of the market? I mean, it's just a one big giant pyramid. And as soon as people want out, then all those paper profits disappear. I mean, the paper profits are great as long as nobody actually tries to realize them. And then we all operate under the delusion that we're rich because we all have assets that we agree not to sell. But the problem is eventually you need the money and the bottom drops out. You know, that's the same delusion that all the crypto people are under, right? Everybody thinks they have all this money in Bitcoin. Well, they do as long as they don't try to get out. As long as everybody is hodling the Bitcoin, they can all pretend that they're rich. But when they actually try to convert those paper riches into actual stuff that they actually want to go out and buy those Lambos or whatever it is they want to buy, then the market implodes unless you have a new round of suckers who are dumb enough to uh, to buy your Bitcoin. But I want to get back to Warren Buffett because he was the big guns that CNBC brought out. Uh, he was on early this morning, well before the market opened, although they probably scheduled them, I guess, Friday. Although it seemed pretty likely that we were vulnerable to a big Monday decline uh, given what happened on Friday. So they had uh, Warren Buffett queued up uh, to, you know, to, to uh, urge the sheeple uh, not to panic and not to sell when they should begin. They should be selling anyway, right? Even if it wasn't for the coronavirus, there are plenty of reasons to sell the U.S. stock market. Uh, so that's, you know, that's that's another one. But uh, he was saying, no, no, no. You know, you want to be an investor for the long term. Think about 20 or 30 years from now, uh, which in general is true. I mean, yeah, I mean, stocks are good investments for the long term. And if you have a 20 to 30 year time horizon, but a lot of uh, people who are uh, retired now, a lot of people who are, you know, nearing retirement, you know, they're not going to be alive for another 20 or 30 years. So it's not about, you know, is this a good business for the long run? It's is this business overpriced in the short run? And how much further could it fall between now and the time I need the money? That is the risk, you know, because it's one thing to buy a business when it's cheap. If you buy businesses that are undervalued, and that's how Warren Buffett likes to describe buying stocks, you know, buying businesses. But if you get a good price for a business, fine. But overpaying, that's the problem. If you go into the U.S. stock market at peak valuations, like if you bought the U.S. stock market in 1929 before the crash, you had to wait until the mid-1950s to get your money back. I mean, that's a long time. Same thing if you bought in the peak in the 60s. If you bought in 1966... You didn't even get your money back until 1982, but inflation has stolen 70% of it. You didn't get your purchasing power back until 2000 and something. So it took a long, long time, longer than a lot of people lived uh, to get their money back if they made the mistake of buying into the peak of a bubble. And that's clearly what people are doing now. I mean, they're near the peak of a bubble. So to think that, hey, we, there's no reason to sell, there's no reason to panic. I mean, selling isn't panicking. It's making a rational decision to ring the cash register, that you're in an overvalued asset, in an overvalued currency that's going to implode. You know, 
um, Warren Buffett, you go back and you can read this article. You'll find it on the internet. But he wrote an article in 2003. And it was a warning about the national debt. And at the time, the national debt was still below $7 trillion, right? It was high. It was $6.5 trillion or something like that. Uh, now, of course, it's more than three times as high. It's over $23 trillion. But back then, he wrote this article that was very critical of the deficits and warning about the problems that this profligacy uh, was going to uh, you know, visit on the U.S. economy. And he kind of made up the name of a country that was supposed to be the U.S., and he called that country Squanderville. And he named the, country, the currency of Squanderville Squanderbucks. So obviously Squanderville was the United States and Squanderbucks were the dollar. And he had other countries that were vendor financing and lending money and supplying goods uh, to Squanderville. And that country was Thriftville, right? And so maybe Thriftville was like China or somebody else. But he basically wrote about the big day of reckoning uh, that Squanderville was going to have and anybody holding on to squander bucks because the dollar was going to get killed and people needed to hedge. And he was urging uh, the government to do something about this uh, fiscal time bomb uh, before it exploded. Well, here we are now is on CNBC and they barely mentioned the debt. I mean, OK, they mentioned there we have a debt, but no kind of alarm, no talk of Squanderville or squander bucks. As far as he's concerned, everything is fine. In fact, he admits that he's a Democrat. Uh, he's just not going to be able to vote for Bernie Sanders. Right. He says he'd, he'd vote for uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg. Of course, he said he didn't want to officially endorse him because he thought the endorsement might actually backfire and hurt him because it would just be another billionaire. Uh, you know, backing a fellow billionaire. So they're all sticking together, right, to screw the little guy. So he didn't want to endorse him. But he's not even worried about uh, Sanders becoming president. I mean, why not sell now? Because what if he wins? I mean, he knows how bad it's going to be. In fact, I think it's Becky Quick, who was the person who was interviewing him, specifically asked him about Sanders' plan to basically nationalize 20% of most publicly traded stocks and just give the shares to the workers, right? Just, you know, this is what they do down in South Africa or other countries, you know, just steal, steal stock and give it to the workers. And, you know, how do you feel about that? Of course, that's a very scary thought if you're currently a shareholder and 20% of your shares are going to be stolen and given to the workers. And so he obviously thinks this is a bad idea, but it's more than just a bad idea. I mean, it's, it, it's an awful idea, right? But, but think about this. I mean, how do you even do this? So the government's going to take all of this stock or they're going to force the companies to issue brand new shares and just give them to their employees. Well, how do you stop the employees from selling the shares? I mean, that's what happened in South Africa. They steal a bunch of stock, right? Because they say, oh, you know, uh, the workers don't have enough stock or blacks don't have enough stock relative to whites. So they steal money. They steal shares from white people or companies and they give them to these black employees. Then as soon as they get the shares, they sell them. And now they got the same problem because now now it's gone. I mean, that's what they're going to do. If the government takes stock and gives it to the workers, OK, now the workers are going to sell the stock and now they're not going to have it. They're going to turn it into cash and spend it. You know, if the workers wanted stock in publicly traded companies, they could just buy it. Go out and buy it. Because, but if they did that, they'd be taking a risk. They don't want to take a risk. They just want to spend the money. So how are you going to ever create a situation 
where the workers own a stake in the business if they keep selling their stake, right? And then what happens if, okay, you know, you, you give a bunch of stock to the workers, then what happens if they hire a new guy? Do you have to give the new guy stock too? Do you have to keep issuing new stock to everybody you hire? Because if that's the case, they're just going to stop hiring people or they're going to have to dramatically lower their salaries because they're going to compensate them by giving them shares as opposed to um, uh, giving them cash. And of course, what's going to happen if you issue all this stock, right, to workers, right? You give all these workers who really don't want to own the stock, right? You give them 20% of the shares. Well, now they're going to dump them on the market. What's going to happen to the price of all these companies when all these employees are given shares that were just stolen from the shareholders and now they go and sell them to get the money because they want to buy stuff, which is what they want to do. So this whole thing is asinine and unconstitutional, of course, but very dangerous. Yet Warren Buffett is still telling people not to worry, shouldn't try to time the market. Well, you know what? If the market was really cheap, you know, okay. But if you've got a very expensive market and you've got all of these time bombs looming on the horizon, why not take a little risk off the table? You know, why not buy a little gold? You know, one of the interesting things is that while Warren Buffett was being interviewed, and he was up there for like three hours interviewing, gold was up 30 to $40 the entire time. And Buffett did not get a single question about gold or what he thought about the rally in gold. But what he was asked to comment on was Bitcoin, right? So Becky Quick couldn't care less what Warren Buffett thought about gold or a new seven-year high in the price of gold or all-time record high in terms of just about every other currency. But she wanted his thoughts on Bitcoin, especially since he had lunch with some Bitcoin people or dinner that had won the annual contest to have a meal with Warren Buffett. And what they had hoped to do was to convince Warren Buffett to buy some Bitcoin. And apparently, I didn't read some of these stories, but what Becky Quick was saying was that they had basically said that they had a productive conversation and that, your, that Warren Buffett's mind was open to Bitcoin. And I know from personal experience that all these Bitcoin shills, they always want to put a positive spin on everything. And that's putting it politely, because what they really do is lie. And they want to pretend that people are, you know, backing Bitcoin or supporting it who really aren't. And, and Warren Buffett quickly threw cold water on that, uh, on that idea by saying, no, his mind was not changed at all, that he doesn't own any Bitcoin, which seemed to surprise Becky Quick. She was like, you don't own any of it? She's like, no, why would I own it? He doesn't own any of it. His mind was not changed one bit. There was nothing that any of these guys told him over that very expensive meal uh, that made him think uh, uh, Bitcoin uh, was any more viable. Uh, you know, his appetite was not uh, wet at all uh, for Bitcoin. He, he thinks it's just as horrible. It's garbage. It's going to zero. Right? And that's, you know, I agree with him. I mean, Warren Buffett and I are on the same page on that. We're on the same page on a lot of things. I mean, he mentioned he doesn't like the minimum wage. He wants to increase the earned income tax credit. But again, in order to cut taxes, you need to cut government spending. He doesn't want to talk about that. I mean, Buffett is a smart guy. Now, had they asked, had she asked Buffett about gold? Now, I know how he feels about gold. As a long-term investment, Buffett doesn't like it because he says, look, it's just a rock, right? It's in a, it, you, you, you dig it out of the ground and then you dig another hole and you store your gold, right? So he says it doesn't do anything which is true, it doesn't do anything. But what it does do while you're storing it in a hole in the ground 
is it preserves the intrinsic value of the metal. It is a store of value. And I know that Warren Buffett recognizes that because he's written about it. He's recommended his own gold, his own silver. So if Warren Buffett was bearish on the dollar and bearish on the markets, he would buy gold as a temporary store of value. He would hold gold while he's waiting for the investments that he likes to own long-term businesses because they throw off income as opposed to gold that throws off none. He would want to store his value in gold waiting for better buying opportunities. He's done that in the past, including with silver, and I'm sure he'd do it again. So he could have really contrasted the differences in his mind between gold and silver and why one actually has intrinsic value and does represent a store of value and a safe haven and why the other one is just a pyramid scheme, which is exactly the way he described it. And of course, you know, Bitcoin was down as much, if not more, than stocks during the day. So, I mean, she's ignoring the rise in the price of gold and just asking about something that's going down at the same time stocks are going down. In fact, I was watching a CNBC the whole day and I barely heard gold mentioned. A couple of people mentioned it just to, in passing uh, that it was going up, but they didn't have anybody come on and say, yeah, you got to buy gold. Gold's going to 2000 or gold's going to 3000 or 5000 or there's going to be a lot of inflation. So you got to buy gold. Fiat currencies are going down. So you got to buy gold. But what they did do is they brought on Tim Draper, right? A, a big Bitcoin bull to come on there. And he had a long interview on CNBC and he basically said, Bitcoin is going to $250,000 Bitcoin. Gold never even came up in the conversation. You got to buy this. Now, what Becky Quick did do is she asked him to comment on Warren Buffett, right? Because Warren Buffett's interview happened earlier in the day. And so Becky was like, hey, um, or whoever, well, actually it wasn't Becky that I, somebody else was interviewing uh, Draper, I believe. I forget who it was. But Draper was asked, this much I remember, about Buffett. And they played the interview. They played the clip of Buffett talking to Quick where he, you know, described, you know, Bitcoin and how much he didn't like it. And so instead of trying to, you know, argue with what Buffett said, right, critiquing the valid points that he made, he just started attacking him as a person and uh, assaulting his, 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 his impartiality or his credibility. And what he said was that, well, you know, of course, Warren Buffett doesn't like Bitcoin. What do you expect him to say? He's not going to say good things about Bitcoin because Bitcoin threatens him because he's, he's involved in banking. He's involved in finance. And so Bitcoin is going to disrupt that. Bitcoin is going to destroy all these businesses. So of course, he has to talk it down. He has to say all these bad things about Bitcoin. But so secretly, he likes Bitcoin and he knows that it's going to succeed but he's deliberately you know, knocking it because he's trying to protect his investments. I mean, kind of like what people say about me. Oh, you like gold. You, you have a gold business. So that's why you hate Bitcoin because Bitcoin is going to replace gold. I know Bitcoin isn't going to replace gold. If I thought it was, I would buy it. I know it's not. I know it's a bunch of nonsense. But the problem is you have this guy, Draper, who is as biased as anybody. He's loaded up with Bitcoin. He's, he's Mr. Bitcoin, basically. He has a huge vested interest in the success of Bitcoin. If Bitcoin fails, he loses a lot of money. So he's as biased as, as, uh, as anybody, certainly as biased as Buffett, if not more so. I mean, if you live in a glass house, you don't throw stones. 
right? And so when I want to argue with people about uh, Bitcoin, I don't just say, oh, you, you're just saying that because you own it. I, I go after the flaws in their arguments. Now, I believe that a lot of the people who do own it have their judgments clouded, right? They're in a state of cognitive dissonance because they're so convinced that they're going to get rich by holding Bitcoin that they don't even want to leave open the, the, the possibility that they're wrong. So they kind of build up this subconscious mental wall that keeps all that you know information from sinking in and they stubbornly hold on to these ridiculous ideas. But the interesting thing, again, and typical, is that CNBC throughout the day found reasons to talk about Bitcoin and to tout Bitcoin, even though Bitcoin is going down. And gold, which was up all day, hitting new highs. No, completely ignore that. Let's not even talk about gold. Let's just focus on uh, on, on Bitcoin. I mean, are, are the guys at CNBC that clueless or do, are they just trying to target a demographic? Are they just trying to get younger people uh, to uh, to listen to their show and they think if they talk about Bitcoin all the time that somehow they'll get more viewers among uh, a younger investors that are too smart or too uh, too naive and don't have enough experience uh, to uh, to know any better. In fact, one of the things that Draper said is if you go to your typical person under 30 and offer them $10,000 or $10,000 worth of Bitcoin that they take the Bitcoin. And I don't think he's anywhere close to being uh, truthful on that. I do believe that there are some people that would rather have the Bitcoin than the cash. But I think the vast majority of people, even younger people today, uh, would rather have the money in their hand than the Bitcoin in their digital wallet. But you know, one more thing I wanted to say about Buffett, too, when he's talking about the fact that he's a Democrat, you might think, you know, why is, is Buffett a Democrat? I mean, he's a very, very smart guy. He said he's a card-carrying capitalist. He actually carries a card in his wallet uh, that basically says that. Uh, so he believes in the free enterprise system. Uh, and so why is he a Democrat? And, you know, I think the reason that he's a Democrat, I think it's the same reason a lot of wealthy people are Democrats. One of it is guilt. You know, I think there are successful people, wealthy people that kind of feel guilty about how much they have about their own success. And one way to, uh, you know, alleviate those feelings of guilt is to, uh, you know, be compassionate and be a Democrat. Except the problem is you're not compassionate when you're a Democrat. You're a fool. You're, you're letting your compassion overwhelm your reason. What's really compassionate is understanding how all of these social programs backfire and actually make the problems that they're trying to solve worse. I mean, what you should do if you want to help other people, other than the way Buffett helps people by employing them and by helping them manage their money and generate wealth, is just give to your own charities, which Buffett certainly does. Don't don't vote for the government to steal other people's money and then supposedly be charitable with it. Just be charitable with your own money. If you feel guilty about the money you have, then give it away yourself because you're going to do a much better job of that. But I think the second reason, it's not just about guilt. It's about uh, how you're perceived by your fellow man. And I think a lot of rich people, especially people that are in the public eye like Buffett, they want to be liked and they know that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to resent them for their wealth and who are going to be envious of them. And so what they want to do in order to be more liked, right, despite the fact that they're so rich, 
is to show that they really care about their fellow man, that they're compassionate, that they want to help others. And the way they do that is I'm a Democrat. That proves that I care. And to the Republicans, see, if a Republican meets a Democrat, he doesn't think the person is mean. He just thinks the, the person is uninformed or foolish, right? So it's okay if you're a rich person and you're a Democrat, because that doesn't mean you're a bad person. It's just, you know, why are you a Democrat? I mean, can't you uh, educate yourself a little bit better? Uh, but what happens is when a Democrat, a lot of Democrats meet a rich guy, if they happen to be a Republican, it's like, ah, oh, figures that greedy bastard doesn't care about anybody but himself, right? Because he's, he's rich and he's a Republican, right? So if you say I'm rich, but hey, I'm a Democrat, I'm rich, but I'm, I'm a good guy, and what are you? then that kind of, you know, takes some of the sting out of it and it makes wealthy people, uh, you know, more appealing or less unappealing uh, to Democrats that believe Republicans are bad. So I think you do have this self-interest of uh, wealthy people to want to be liked and the way they are liked is by being Democrats. But the thing is, there's only so far Buffett is willing to push it. So he's willing to go to a Bloomberg or maybe he even supported Hillary Clinton, right? But he's not willing to go all the way to the dark side and go for a Bernie Sanders, which obviously is going to be a big problem uh, for a lot of people. And right now, that's actually not a problem. That may be the only thing standing between us and electing a socialist because the odds of Bernie Sanders winning the uh, Democratic nomination have gone up. I'm looking at predict it right now and to bet on Bernie Sanders, it's going to cost 62 cents. I did see that as high as 68 cents a couple of days ago. So his odds have gone down a little bit. And actually Joe Biden, because Joe Biden finished second in, um, in Nevada, but a distant second. Uh, to uh, Bernie Sanders, who won by a landslide, basically. But Joe Biden has now pulled even with Michael Bloomberg. So those guys are both at 16 cents. But, you know, having both Biden and Bloomberg in the race is great for Sanders because they just take votes away from one another. And, of course, uh, Warren and Buttigieg are still in there. Uh, but these guys are battling it out uh, for the so-called moderate vote. Also, you could throw in Klobuchar in there. Uh, but Sanders has got the left lane all to himself. And so as long as these guys are there, the probability of uh, Sanders becoming uh, the nominee gets higher and higher. And the only way to stop him would be a brokered convention where despite the fact that Sanders has the most delegates, the nomination goes to somebody else, which, of course, is going to be a big, big problem for the Democrats if they take it away from Bernie. And of course, that's what Trump is going to say. Hey, the whole thing was rigged. The nominee should have been Bernie, the whole party. I mean, Trump is getting a kick out of this and talking about how uh, the, deck is, the deck is stacked against Bernie. And it is. They don't want him. Just like the Republican establishment didn't want Trump. Now, that doesn't mean Trump and Bernie are the same type of people. No, I mean, Bernie is not a populist. Bernie's a socialist. Bernie's a communist. Right. He's not just saying things that are popular. Right. He's saying things that are nuts. He's saying really, really bad things. But the way he is able to energize so many people is he's promising to pay them. Right. It's basically blackmail. He's buying the votes and he's offering more money than any Democratic candidate has ever offered. That is his appeal. It's a very lowest denominator type appeal. Because he's not out there saying, I promise to get government off your back. We're going to have a freer country and you're going to be able to succeed and you're going to be able to go as far as your hard work and your aspirations and your talents will take you. 
and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and we're going to have a great country. He's not talking about that. He's saying, I'm going to give you free stuff. I'm not going to let you earn more money by making you freer. I'm going to help you steal more money from some other guy. That's basically what uh, Bernie Sanders is promising, to steal money and give it to the people who vote for him. And he's getting a lot of people who are willing to do that. But, you know, you might wonder, why are young people, and if you look at his lead under 40 or something, he's killing it. He's getting like, I don't know, 60% of the people under 40 are voted for him. And why are these young people, uh, you know, gravitating to socialism? Of course, obviously, one reason is they're younger and less experienced and they don't know any better. They haven't lived long enough and experienced enough life to understand that all this nonsense that they want, uh, you know, doesn't work. But also, you have to think about what this country has done to the younger generations, what my generation, what the baby boomers have done. Because the baby boom sowed the winds of socialism, and that's why they're about to reap the whirlwind. Look what the baby boom and even earlier generations, the great generation, look what was done to young people with Social Security, with Medicare, and now with Obamacare, right? We've had all these taxes that transfer wealth from the young to the old. And of course, when we're doing that, we're tr taking money from people that don't have very much. I mean, the average person paying Social Security taxes and Medicare taxes and Obamacare, they have a lot less wealth than the people receiving the benefits. So it's a transfer in general from the young and the poor to the old and the rich. So we've been screwing the younger generation. So it's harder and harder for these guys to survive when 15, 16% of their payroll is being taken uh, for Social Security, Medicare. And now we've really jacked their insurance premiums up through the roof because the way Obamacare worked is we decided to subsidize the older, sicker people by charging the younger, healthy people even more. But the younger, healthy people don't even need insurance because they're young and they're healthy, but they don't have the money. And so they're getting screwed there too. But then we really screwed them with college, right? We, we told our kids and our grandkids, you got to go to college. No matter how dumb you are, no matter how low your grades were in high school, you still need to go to college. And it doesn't even matter what you study. Just study whatever nonsense you want. The important thing is you get that degree. Just go to college, spend four, five, six years there, however many is required. You got to get this piece of paper because if you don't get this piece of paper, you're going to be a fry cook, right? And also, it doesn't matter what the paper costs. It doesn't matter what the cost of this college degree is. Just pay for it, whatever it is, right? Because it's so important that you have it. It's so valuable and your life is worthless if you don't have it that, you know, spare no expense. Doesn't matter. And by the way, the government's going to loan you all the money. So you don't even have to pay for it now, right? You can worry about it later on. When you get this fantastic job, you're making all this money because you got this degree, oh, you can pay off your student loans. So now the young people bought into that BS. And so now they have an overpriced, worthless college degree and they have a mountain of debt and they have a lousy, low-paying job right? Where the cost of living is going up faster than the raises they're able to get. And so they're, they're you know, they're, they're on a treadmill, but they're, they're going backwards. And, and, and so they're upset. And now Bernie Sanders comes along and says, hey, here's your chance to get even, right? How about we forgive all those student loans, right? All right. Yeah, that sounds great, right? The younger people, they want to get even that we, we put them in this spot, right? We gave them a taste of socialism, but on the wrong end. 
Now they want to be on the right end, right? They want to be on the receiving end of that theft. And this is very, very popular force that is going to gain a lot of momentum. It's, it's being underestimated in the Democrats. And of course, part of the big problem for these Democrats is so many of them are afraid to criticize what Bernie stands for because so many Democrats actually stand for that. You have a lot of very liberal people who are in the Democratic Party. Now, if you alienate the middle, it's hard to win a general election. But if you alienate the left, how do you win your primary? See, this is what a lot of these congressmen are so scared of, especially when you have AOC in there, you know, promising to raise money to oust incumbent Democrats who aren't left enough, you know, who have who still have some sensibilities. They're not complete idiots, right? Because in order to pass her litmus test, you got to be a complete idiot and embrace like the Green New Deal and all this nonsense. But if you're in a Democratic district and you come out and you're, hey, Bernie Sanders is nuts. He wants socialism, communism. It's not going to work. All of a sudden, hey, this guy's got to go. He's he's not he's not part of the revolution. He's he's our enemy, just like the Republicans. And now they fund a challenger and they knock you out in your primary. That is what everybody's afraid of. So they got to handle him with kit gloves because they can't piss off his supporters because they need those supporters to keep their own seats. Now we'll see what happens. There's another debate coming up. This one, of course, is going to have Bloomberg again. So he has a second shot uh, to do a better performance and try to come up with a strategy that is viable. But I wonder if uh, all of the other candidates are going to, again, focus all of their ammunition, you know, taking out Bloomberg again. Uh, or maybe Biden, and they're going to completely ignore the elephant in the room, and that is Bernie Sanders, who is now the winner. I mean, he's won Nevada. He won New Hampshire. He basically won Iowa. I mean, even though he didn't quite win the delegates, he won the popular vote, so he can claim that he's won. He's, he's 3-0 and as far as the popular vote, and so he's on a roll. You know, so they, you know, they, they got to go after him. But again, they have a PR problem because he is the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Unfortunately, that is the face of the Democratic Party. You have such a big block of ultra left, right? These socialists, that's their core. That's their core constituency. And so they can't alienate him. But if they don't alienate him, they risk having Bernie Sanders as their nominee. And the scariest thing is not that he's going to lose to Trump, but that he might win. Now, in reality, I think if Bernie Sanders does win, all this crazy stuff that he's talking about, it's not going to happen because he's not a dictator up there. I mean, a lot of this stuff has to go through Congress before he can even sign it. And I don't even think a Democratic Congress is going to pass a lot of this stuff. But a lot of bad stuff will pass if Sanders is elected. And there is a lot of stuff that he can do, a lot of bad stuff that he can do with executive orders. And believe me, if you thought Obama was bad with executive orders, where do you see what Bernie Sanders does? So, you know, if, if you needed a reason to sell the U.S. stock market, that's all you need. Forgetting about that we're at record highs because he's got a chance of winning. I mean, if you look on this predictit.com and you look at the odds, right? The odds of Donald Trump winning are a little bit better than 50-50. He just notched up. He's at 56 cents, right? 56 uh, cents to win. Bernie Sanders is at 38 cents. And the reason he's not the exact difference uh, is because, you know, he, he doesn't have the Democratic nomination yet. But obviously, 
the chances, according to this website, of Sanders winning the Democratic nomination and then winning the White House are almost 40%, right? And if he wins, at a minimum, this highly overpriced stock market is going to go down by 50%. I mean, it went down by 50% 2001. It went down by 50% 2008. It's a lot more overvalued now than it was then. The U.S. economy is far more screwed up now than it was then. And Bernie Sanders is going to do far more damage to the economy than any other president we've ever had, right? Uh, so if the market could drop in half during those periods, why wouldn't it do it again? So if there's a almost 40% chance that the market's going to get cut in half, when does the market at least go down 20% to kind of factor that in and discount that possibility? That's going to start. And in fact, it might have already started and it may continue. But as long as we got the coronavirus out there, everybody's going to be talking about the fact that it's the coronavirus and they'll ignore the other factors that could be driving uh, the market lower, like the Sanders virus, which is not only more contagious right now, but it's actually more fatal. It's a more lethal disease. A lot more people ultimately will end up dying of uh, the Sanders virus and have in the past. If you look at all the people who have died uh, from communism, right, from this ideology that is, you know, not only all the people that have been murdered, uh, but people who have just died uh, because of it and all the people who have been impoverished, right? They always start out, oh, you know, we're going to spread the wealth around. No, no, they destroy all the wealth. They end up spreading the poverty around, right? If you're poor and then you vote in socialism, you get even poorer. You don't get richer. Sure, the rich get poor too, but now the poor are even poorer than they were before. And so nobody benefits, but unfortunately, people don't understand this. They constantly fall for this false promise. I mean, guys like Sanders, I mean, these kind of demagogues, this is why the founding fathers established the United States as a republic. They, they were afraid of guys like this. Now, fortunately, we do have a constitution. And again, remember that even if a lot of this crazy stuff actually gets through Congress and Sanders signs it, that doesn't mean that it's going to survive Supreme Court scrutiny. Because if there's any backbone there, and maybe the best thing Trump has done is maybe put in some better judges that are sitting on the bench right now that can actually do their job and strike down a lot of these things. I can imagine the reaction among the public if the Supreme Court actually strikes down some of these socialist laws that a lot of these uh, Bernie bros think are going to be so great. Can you imagine the anger that there's going to be against the Supreme Court uh, if you know they stand in the way between... Uh, uh, Sanders supporters and, you know, uh, this uh, socialist utopia that they envisioned. But in the meantime, there's a lot of risk in this market. As I said, no reason to own it when you can own gold stocks, which are cheap, which were barely up today. You know, you had a lot of gold stocks that were actually down on the day. You know, the traders are more focused on the fact that we sold off, you know, 30 bucks or whatever from the highs, not that we were up again and made another new high. So you've got great opportunities. My gold fund again, the Europe Pacific Gold Fund, I continue to think that's the best way for average people to play it. And you know, if you have a bigger account and you don't want to be just in a mutual fund, we run separately managed accounts. Adrian Day manages our separately managed gold accounts as well. And there you're not commingled in the fund. You have an account with gold stocks and it's pretty much the same portfolio that you would get in a fund, except you don't own a mutual fund, you own your own account. And of course, if it's a large enough account, it's a more cost-effective way 
for you to go about uh, getting exposure to the sector. But also if you're just, hey, I don't wanna be all in gold stocks. I don't wanna take that much risk. I wanna, I wanna buy businesses like Warren Buffett is saying, I wanna buy good businesses, right? Well, buy good businesses that aren't overvalued. Buy good businesses that aren't paying dividends uh, in currency that's gonna be killed, squander bucks, right? That's what we got. So if you wanna have a solid portfolio and you wanna own good businesses, you gotta get them out of the United States. You gotta realize that all we've been doing is inflating this gigantic bubble. Uh, and yeah, it's a lot bigger than I thought it would be uh, 10 years ago. But it just means it's going to pop in an even bigger way. There's more air in it, so more air is going to come out. That means more people who have been betting on it are going to lose even more money as a result. But the people who bet against it are going to make even more money as a result of having the patience right, to have wrote it out and, and stayed in long enough for the payday. <music>